How are you? Hey, I am doing great. Yesterday, my youngest son turned 15. We went out and got a driver's permit and upgraded his phone. And it was just a good day of hanging out with my son and celebrating his birthday. It was great. That's awesome. Yeah. How are you? I am doing well as well. You know, more and more as my kids get older, their lives harmonize a bit. And so they have been on a bit of an experiment over the last couple of weeks. I don't know if I've talked about this or not, but uh, they have both given up some hobbies that they'd been doing for quite a while and both wanted to join a rock climbing gym. And historically, they have operated best when they have their own spheres. But this is them somewhat begrudgingly having the same sphere, the rock climbing gym. And it's going well. So tonight, they are going rock climbing together. Uh, and I'm super intrigued by that. Wow. Like, your son is driving your daughter and they're just like leaving the house together and doing a thing together? They're not even coming home. My daughter has archery practice after school. So my son is going to hang out at school until archery practice is done. And then they're going to go straight to the rock gym. That's so cool. Yeah. So I am intrigued by this. Yes. I love this. I, As a parent, I absolutely love when my kids go do things together. Like they'll grab breakfast together, like, you know, any two of them or sometimes all three, or they'll go out for coffee or they'll go do an activity or whatever. Like, it's so fun to be like, I like that you like one another. I am hoping that is the outcome here. I don't know whether to love it or hide under my desk in case, <laughs> you know, the whole thing blows up in our faces. But I'm hopeful that it is the first one. All right. Yeah. I definitely have a little bit of a, is this going to work? Please work. Please work. <laughs> situation going on in my head. All right. But such is life, I guess. Yes. But Yeah. So what's going on? Why'd you call? What's what, What's on your mind? Yeah. All right. So- a number of weeks ago, you said you were really interested in reviewing Psalm 91. And this is something I know you've been thinking about for quite some time. And I have the opportunity to preach here at, in the middle of January, and I wanted to actually preach this same text. And so I'm hoping that we could do a little something that I've learned about through my new church called Sermon prep team. And I don't know, have I talked about this Ooh. on the podcast? I don't think you have. So my pastor does, does this amazing thing where he has all of the pastors gather together on early Tuesday mornings for something that they call sermon prep team. But there's also a couple of people from the church that are a part of the sermon prep team. And so they serve six-month rotations on the team. And the requirement is that you come to each session having read either two commentaries on the passage or listened to two sermons on the passage. And everybody comes prepared to talk, and they analyze the actual text. They discuss ways to illustrate the text or ways to apply the text in a way that would fit a sermon and connect with a congregation. 
And so it's a wide ranging kind of conversation that just helps the person that's going to be preaching get a full grasp on how this text operates and how to apply it. And so I thought maybe we could just do something similar here to not only dive into Psalm 91, but dive into some of the sermon crafting elements that would help me to preach it well. Oh, I love that. Well, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So I got to ask you just straight out of the gate, what drew you to this psalm and why did you put it on my radar like a month and a half ago? Okay. So the short answer is this psalm is part of the Book of Common Prayer's Sompline Prayer. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but there are three or four psalms that the Book of Common Prayer leads you to pray each evening. And so as you pray those psalms over and over and over and over, they get just deeper and deeper into you, and you start to think about them more and more. And this particular psalm, the more I thought and prayed it, the more intrigued I was by what it was trying to say, because it has a very interesting relationship to Jesus himself. And it seems to be making some giant promises that we have to wrestle with what that means. You know, this is one of the Psalms that Satan quotes in the New Testament when he's tempting Jesus. That in and of itself makes it a fascinating Psalm. Yeah, it does. And it's funny in our modern times, I feel like we are far more familiar with our New Testaments than our Old Testament. And so it's almost as though it, we have the reverse effect of what the first audience may have heard. When the first audience heard something in the New Testament, it was echoing the Old Testament. But I feel like now when we read our Old Testament, all of a sudden we see the echoes of the New Testament. And it's mm-hmm. a very different experience. So yeah, when you read the Psalm, you're like, oh, wait. You know, Satan had said, oh, God will send his angels concerning you, and you will not strike your foot against the stone or whatever. And you're going, oh, that's what Satan said to Jesus. But in reality, Satan is quoting this. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is one of the bigger questions that I, I have about this text. We are so quick to apply all promises of the Bible to ourselves, whether they were actually made to us or not. and so. One of the initial questions I had, more because of my life situation and some of the reading we had done, one of the things that struck me in our reading about the Psalms throughout the summer was how often the person of the king, whether lowercase k or capital K, was an active participant in the Psalms. And so I guess I found myself, particularly since Jesus often steps into that role in the Psalms of the king, since this psalm ends up being relevant to Jesus' life, I think it's an important question to ask, are the promises in this psalm being made to everybody? Are the promises in this psalm just being made to the king? If so, what does the life of Jesus say about either of those possibilities. And I struggle a lot with that. I mean, to to kind of jump into the first verse of the text, the ESV, which is what I'll be reading from our whole conversation here, starts with what I 
take to, and, and you've spent some time in reading this in the original language. So I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of structure, but it appears to me verse one is a summary verse. Here's the main point of what I'm trying to say here. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Is that what you take that verse to be? This is kind of a summary statement. Yeah, I, almost like a truism, right? This is just mm. a fact that is going to orient us to everything that follows here. And we're going to state this fact, and then I'm going to give some personal testimony. I, the speaker, am going to give some personal testimony to that fact. And then I am going to pronounce this blessing over you in light of that fact. And so what I find fascinating in this psalm is the just the different voices that are heard. Mm -hmm. You have at the very beginning, whoever's speaking, it doesn't name who's speaking, I say, or I, whatever. It's just this undescribed I. So, okay. So we have somebody speaking. We have the you, the somebody to whom they are speaking. And then at the very end, we have God stepping in to say something as well. So we have these Mm -hmm. three individuals and other than God, they are nameless. And so Mm -hmm. I have no idea who's saying this truism, but I do agree that it orients us to everything that follows. Yeah. And so I'm going to add a potential fourth character because I think you have I, you, God, and he. And he in the first verse, even though it's just a truism, is a potentially overlapping of I and you but isn't exactly the same as either one. The narrator considers himself to be part of the group of people that we could call he, but it seems like he's saying, you can be this person. It's an offering or an option. Okay. The nameless whoever, is that what you mean? Mm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. There's this category of people, whoever, X, then Y. And even this, as you... I'm curious, as you translate through that first verse, how close was your translating to what it looks like in my English Bible? Yeah, so I have to admit, I strayed from my normal practice. Usually when I prepare a sermon, the very first thing I do is sit down and translate the passage. I have not had time in these last couple of weeks to do that, and so I have kind of glanced at the Hebrew as I have thought through various textual issues uh, that's come out of my commentary reading. And so I'm looking at the Hebrew as we speak. Yeah, it's going to be very, very close to what your translation says. There are some textual issues in this because there's some difference between the original Masoretic Hebrew text and the translation into Greek, the Septuagint. And so Mm -hmm. when you're looking at these Old Testament documents, those are your two primary sources. And the Septuagint does some interesting things with the Masoretic text, and it may suggest kind of some traditions that grew up around this psalm. And so I'd actually lean toward the Masoretic text reading, the Hebrew text. So anyway, that's a side tangent, but all that to say, it's going to be very similar to what you're reading. Perfect. So... I have a million thoughts about this. What is the most useful conversation that we can have 
as you are thinking about pairing a sermon. I could just spew things at you all day long, but that's not necessarily the most helpful conversation for you to have. Yeah. Well, okay. So you started with the crux of the matter, honestly. You said, hey, we're very quick to apply all promises in Scripture to us as individuals, rather than to acknowledge the context in which it was said. And so sometimes a promise is giving straight to the Davidic king. Well, I'm not a Davidic king, so I'm not quite sure that I could apply that same promise to me. So I think that's a wonderful place to start because if this is a psalm, if the you in this psalm, right, the the speaker might be a priest or something like that, saying this psalm over an anointed king that changes how we would apply it today as a congregation. But nothing about this psalm requires that understanding. It seems possible, given some of the language that they chose to use, but nothing addresses the king whatsoever. The actual heading that we have over many psalms isn't there, so we don't have like a psalm of David or a psalm of blah, 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 blah. We don't have a heading. We don't have a name. This is a psalm without a context. And so how do you apply that? And is it appropriate to apply to us today? I think is a great place to start. As I told you, even when we first started talking about this particular psalm, this is exactly the question. So my first question then becomes, what are the principles by which we choose what and how to apply a psalm without a context. What do you think we do with that? Well, I think we have to look at the rest of Scripture to see how this psalm is used, the context in which it is embedded, and do our best analysis. The problem is, I only have, in this present moment, maybe you'll have more data points than I have, Right now, I have two data points. One is the one you already referenced. Satan chooses to apply this to Jesus. And so Jesus, being the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic kingship, it is intriguing to think, oh, maybe this really was a psalm that was spoken over an anointed king. And we, the you in this passage is you the king. And so Satan takes that and says, you are the king. And so therefore, the angels are going to come and they're going to save you. You can just throw yourself off of this building. It's going to be fine. So that's an intriguing argument. The other argument that I would make is contextually, where does this psalm sit in the book of Psalms itself? Mm. One very interesting aspect to this is Psalms 88 through 90 have some very dark and difficult questions being asked. Things like, how long, O Lord, are you going to hide your face from us? You promised good things to the king, and now you've done nothing but give the king destruction and punish their sins. How long before your anger relents? And God, are you even listening? God, how long are all of these horrible things going to keep happening. Those are the questions being asked in the previous three Psalms. And so you come to this one and it's all about trust and it's all about the ways 
that the world is going to continue its attempted assaults. And there's all of these diseases and wars and even falling over a stone, right? Like just all of the different ways that you could be attacked in this world. And it says those who choose to use Yahweh as their protector and take shelter with him are going to be preserved. And that feels like it's answering very human, universal questions that would seem to apply to everybody. So now I I have my two data points. They point me in opposite directions about how to interpret this psalm, and now I'm stuck. Yeah, and I would add, as I reflected on the temptation narrative, what I actually got out of this even more than anything else was that whatever the correct interpretation of this psalm is, we have to be very careful because it is easily misinterpreted. If Satan can twist its meaning in such a way that he thinks he has a shot at tempting Jesus himself, we just need to be real careful. Mm, That's a good point. Right? Like, I don't want to take the promises of this flippantly. And I think this is, maybe this is the middle ground that I land on based on those two data points. Actually, and there is a third data point, which I think is the structure of it as a whole, the psalm itself. The structure of of the psalm starts with a very broad truism. If the author wanted to narrow down the audience of the psalm, I think he would do it a different way. I think the point of starting with a broad truism is the same as a proverb. It's generally true unless it's not. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Right. And so I think we need to start broad, but start cautiously and not stridently. Because the other thing that's fascinating to me, let's say this is true of Jesus, because Jesus, the point of the incarnation is to bring these two together, right? The king and the people, God and man. He is the full incarnation of both categories of people this psalm might be applicable to, the one leader or all people in general. Either way, we know it applies to Jesus, right? Yeah. And I read this and it says, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And then I think about the crucifixion. Right. Well, I think about the crucifixion, but then I also think about, I don't know. I mean, we just lived through COVID and some people prayed and prayed and prayed that their loved ones would not get sick and yet they got sick and some of them even died. Or people pray against all sorts of things, right? Cancer, car accidents, all these terrors, all these horrible things. And yet they still happen and they happen even to Christians. And I don't know. I think you use the word strident. If you stridently apply this verse and say, it will not come to you, just like if Jesus were to stridently apply to this and your crucifixion will not come to you, 
well, then it's true unless it isn't. Well, and this is where, here's my working hypothesis about how to apply this. And, and tell me if this makes sense. And I'm trying to go from Jesus's life. I think that in our spiritual lives, there is a very real sense in which there is the possibility of meaningless, wanton evil that has nothing to do with anything. And if you are at peace in the world, I think there is a promise here that as far as things go, random evil is not going to hit you. Except what I see in Jesus is a willingness to step onto the battlefield and engage a world that is broken. And that means he is going to take damage because he is choosing to step onto a battlefield. And I don't think this chapter is promising when you step into the battle, because you can't be on Jesus' team and not step into the battle. But when you step into the battle, and I don't want to say it is purposeful damage, because I don't mean that if I get COVID, there is some divine meaning behind it. But if I get COVID, it is a reminder that I have engaged with the world, and therefore I am part of the battlefield, and battlefield damage is part of the reality I've signed up for. But I can charge ahead with confidence. And maybe that's what this is about for me. Maybe there's a confidence that I am being led by a God who can say this kind of thing. I don't know. I, I guess I was rambling there a little bit because I've struggled to put this thought into words. Did that make any kind of sense to you? Yeah, I understand what you're trying to say. I'm not sure if I fully agree because I think you're making a really strong distinction between battlefield damage and random damage that comes through living in an evil world. And I think I would put getting COVID or something like that or getting cancer in that more randomized sphere. I wouldn't say that's battlefield damage. Like, you know, um, John the Baptist getting beheaded, that feels like battlefield damage, right? He was di- yeah. he was attacked directly for what he did in the name of Jesus or in the name of truth. And that feels like battlefield damage. So I don't know that I would be comfortable with a clean distinction like that. Well, and to be honest, as you're saying it back to me, which is why I appreciate these conversations, the text itself seems to dismiss that distinction, right? Whether it is the terror that comes in darkness or an a- the arrow, whether we're talking about pestilence or an army, this text seems to cover all of that. Yeah. So where I wrestle with this text is, again, putting it back in its context with Psalm 88 through 90 and the very real experience that we've all had of feeling like God is absent, feeling like the situations we face are overwhelming, that they are never-ending, that God is completely either checked out or unconcerned, or this is just some delivery of his wrath, and this is just payment for my sins, and I guess I deserve it, but please let it be over, right? All of those things are present in those Psalms. All of those 
feelings are present in those psalms. And then you come to a psalm like this, where God says, hey, none of those things are going to you know, hurt you. And you're like, yeah, but I've been hurt for, by them like my whole life. So that just can't be true in every respect. So in what respect is it true? And I think that's what we're wrestling with. Yeah. And one thing that at least has been deeply comforting to me, the flip side of this coin in this passage is the way that the narrator engages with God. And I love how even in the very first two verses, there is this progressive sense of intimacy. It starts off calling God most high. That is about as distant a language for God as you can use. And then it steps into calling him the Almighty, which is distant, but not that distant. And then the narrator himself calls him Yahweh. And I think there is a sense in which, at least through this sort of progressive intimacy with God, I guess I feel invited to that. I don't know what comes at the end of that journey, but I have felt invited into this sort of, what does it mean to deepen my intimacy with God in moments when I need a shelter, when I need protection? You know, and then I started thinking back to, again, I'm often asking, what are the moments that these people, David and company, are going to be thinking back to? Are they going to be thinking back to the moment in the garden when the world was broken and Adam and Eve hid in fear rather than, they ran away from God rather than running to God? I don't know. I'm just curious. There's this interesting connection here between intimacy and safety. Yeah. And I think in my mind, there's an intimacy that is built through an active decision. And what I mean by that is all of these things are going to come. We live in a fallen world. So death, destruction, enemies, pestilence, all of this stuff is going to happen, period, full stop. What are we going to do in response? And there is an active decision being made in this psalm that says, in face of all of that, I will trust. I will trust in the one that is above everything, the one that is the Almighty, the one that is my personal refuge, the rock on which I stand. I choose to dwell here and be protected by that one in the midst of all of this. And here's the thing, as I thought about the word trust, trust is something you only bring up in moments where you're wavering right? Like when we set out to do this podcast, like we had a 20 year friendship involved here. There was ample trust at no point. Did either of us say, Hey, we're going to like do this together. Do you trust me that like, I'm going to be your co-host throughout all of this? Like there was no question, but you bring up trust when it's like, Oh, there's danger here. There's something that might not work out. Do you trust me? And I think that's an active decision that's being made in this psalm. I will trust you, period, in the face of all of this. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, I was, and my eyes ran over the verse that says, He will rescue you from the snare of the fowler. I think it's fascinating. It doesn't say you won't fall into the snare, it's just that He's going to rescue you from it. You're right. There is significant danger in the world. Again, coming back to Jesus. 
was Jesus living out confidence in the promises of this as he was crucified? I think from what you're saying, he was, he trusted every moment of the cross. He trusted God, even in calling out God's absence. I think the fact that he didn't avoid the danger was the proof that he trusted God to get him out of it. Yeah. You know, this is the proof that Abraham trusted God to rescue Isaac somehow from being sacrificed. The author of Hebrews says he he assumed he'd probably have to raise him from the dead. Right? It wasn't, I'm not going to have to sacrifice my son. It was, well, even if I sacrifice my son, God's not done. Hmm. You know, there's no moment where any of these things gets to have a final word. Oh, that's it. That's it. Full stop right there. I know you were, I'm interrupting your sentence, but none of these things. Final word was not going to be my final word, but it can be. (laughs) I'm going to make it be. But that's because that's it. That sums up this psalm so well. These things are going to happen. They're not going to have the final word. Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will be rewarded for their trust. Yeah. Sorry, you can finish whatever sentence you were going to finish. No, I think that's exactly it. It's, And this comes back to the intimacy thing for me because you get to see God be God in the midst of whatever. If I give up on God in the middle of a temptation or the middle of a trial or the middle of a challenge, what I really miss is seeing God to do what only God can do. Yes. And the result of that giving up in trusting God is that I am terrified by the darkness. And the only way to not be terrified by the darkness is to continually exercise trust. I think that's a great word. Hmm. So this is normally the time at which we're like, eh, we're running out of time on the main topic and let's transition to thoughts and all that. Can we use our thoughts segment? Can we like use up a little bit more time? Because I think this is great. Now I want to know, how do we craft a sermon out of this? Mm, that's really good. I would love to. Um, I would love to. So I guess my first question is, are there illustrations, are there stories that come to mind? And if the answer is no, that's fine. But is there anything that comes to mind as we've been talking, like something that illustrates how this tends to go? One of the things that, when I think of an illustration for this text, I want to be honest about the fact that an illustration, especially a starting point in a sermon, should capture the difficulty of this. This is not something that neatly wraps up in a bow. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I have always deeply respected, and I've said this on the podcast before, is the fact that when your mother-in-law was not doing well, you volunteered to have her move into your house. And that was a complicated engagement with disease and pain and just the mess of the world. To me, this verse, this chapter is talking about. And the simple answer to this would have been, well, she's just going to get better because it says she's, you know, this kind of stuff is not going to hit your life. And that's not what happened. Mm. 
And I'm curious if looking back on that kind of a moment in your life where there was literally, I mean, not pestilence, but sickness that eventually led to death, when you sit with that moment, do you see the truth of this passage come through? Yeah, I do. And it's funny because Shelley and I both look back on that time as a moment when our faith was really refined, if you will. This was a moment where we were raising three young kids and taking care of a dying mother. And I was also, by the way, training at 911, which is really intense. And I actually felt more proud of certifying at police dispatch than I did graduating college. It was just that hard. And I certified at police dispatch three weeks after my mother-in-law died. So we were going through it, right? I was in the middle of some Mm -hmm. really hard training and Shelly was at home with her mom and raising three kids that were really small. And we had to rely on God. We had to rely on God and his provisions. And I have to be honest, one of those provisions was you. Just uh, There were so many times I would call you and just, I had the same complaints, I had the same gripes, and you patiently listened to them every single time. And that was so helpful. But anyway, God protected us in so many ways, and he proved himself faithful throughout all of that, all the way down to some inheritance money that came out of that that was rather, uh, I mean, just a huge blessing. But also, just all the way down to how she died. Um, I don't want to get into the details, but the way in which she actually died would have been horrific had it happened in our home. Because our oldest child, who was about five, well, no, he was about seven, would have found her in the living room. He would have been the first one up and he would have seen that. But as it was, she had been admitted to the hospital a couple of days before, and we were spared that experience. My son was spared that experience. So God just provided in so many countless ways, despite it being a horrible time. So is that the kind of illustration you were asking about? Yeah, I think it's a great illustration because that was such a complicated time. It wasn't as though we just had this perfect trust and everything was happy all the time. It was way more involved, and as this text would suggest. So I think that's great. What would you say would be kind of a main takeaway, right? Like when I preach, I want to have one point, and I want that one point to be a well-crafted message, and I can work on crafting it later. But what would you, as you look at this text, what's the one point you'd want people to put in their pocket and walk home with? I come back over and over again as I read this to verse the beginning of verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. I think that's the the takeaway for me staking your staking your claim is not intimate enough, right? The dwelling place language, the Yahweh language is deeply emotive. And there's something in this text to me about you're going to make it through if you, and I love this word dwell, I can't think of a different, like, I'm trying to think of something that emotionally captures the idea that I think is behind this. Oh, I've, I've, it's this, I've been thinking about 
as you're saying that, there's a childhood tendency that we see very frequently, but we don't always recognize it for what it is. Like a kid loves to make forts and you make that little fort, you get inside of it. And as an adult, you look and go, man, that's such a confined space. Like, why do you enjoy that? Well, that child is making their world small and there is safety Mm -hmm. and there is security in making your world small. And so you see this sometimes in traumatized children or whatnot, they will again seek to make their world small. They'll tuck themselves under something. It's the idea of maybe like even hiding under your bed when the boogeyman is coming or something like that, right? Or hiding under your covers, right? You're making your world smaller and safer. And when you're protected under the shadow of the Almighty, you're dwelling with Him, you're abiding with Him, you're nesting in Him, maybe that's a word. It's this idea of making your world small and being enveloped in His protection. Yeah, I love this. I think you hit on a perfect modern parallel with hiding under the covers. What does it mean to let Jesus be the covers you hide under? Yeah. That's that's the emotional equivalent, I think, that the text is trying to challenge us to hold on to. Yes, I think so too. And so I think something of that needs to come away. The audience needs to come away with that. The congregation needs to come away with that. But I also think this other thing that you said earlier, which was all of these other things do not have the final say. And I love that because it doesn't promise that they won't happen. It doesn't promise that Jesus isn't going to be crucified because no harm is going to befall him. It promises that that, whatever it is, will not have the final say. God, your protection, the covers that you pull over yourself will have the final say. Yep. I remember as a kid being scared of the dark and running into my bed, like believing at a gut level that I was safe when I got under the covers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I believed, like I would run for my covers and dive under them and feel complete relief. And I think that is the emotional equivalent of what this psalm is inviting us to feel if we can explore what it really means to be covered by Jesus. Doesn't mean the other stuff's not going on, you know, the difference, of course, is whatever I was scared of in my head wasn't real, and the, these things are real, mm-hmm. but it mean, that just means the safety is even realer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. This gives me a lot of good fodder for crafting a sermon. I want to turn briefly to the audience and say, as you read Psalm 91, and maybe you even pray this in a compline prayer frequently— What's your experience with this psalm? Uh, What else would you like to add to this conversation in terms of what this psalm communicates to you? I would love to incorporate that as well and and into my thinking and into my spiritual practice. So yeah, I think with that, the only thing left to do is ask an embarrassing which Josh question. Yep, that's it. And today's which Josh question is which Josh lives in a milk barn? 
I am picturing like this has been we're recording still during the Christmas season and like eight maids of milking and I picture them like in their little like thing. <laughs> I that's what I'm picturing in like stalls and different things converted mm. into bedrooms. So what's really going oh, on? Man. Okay, so it's obviously me since you're not picturing the right thing. But so m- the house that I live in that you have visited in Missouri the property and the house originally belonged to the house next door, and it is, in fact, a barn. So if you were to look at the main part of my house, it has these really thick 18-inch board concrete walls, and it was originally a barn. And it's been added to and converted and whatever, but one of the fascinating results of living in a barn, one is... I don't know anybody else who lives in a poured concrete house. Uh, like, I live in a bunker. So if, if you're anywhere near my house and the bomb is about to drop, my house is about as safe as it can possibly get. <laughs> but the other part of this is uh, my grandfather, uh, like many other grandfathers of his generation, would often say, Hey, close the door. What do you think? You live in a barn? <laughs> And now I do. Uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so I just leave the door open all the time on principle. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh. Um, so. Well, having lived in Missouri for a time myself, I know that the Missouri weather does not allow you to leave the door open. So I know you're not telling the truth. Well, but you know, Missouri weather is weird. Like even today, it is several days before Christmas and I threw on a light zip up hoodie because it is still not cold yet. Wow. It was probably 35 when I left the house. It's probably 45 by now and it'll be 50, 55 before the day's out. It's crazy. Hmm. But uh, we on for next week. I am looking forward to it. All right. I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.